Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, the evils of social media, and I'm not just talking about bots, and youth dating violence here in NYC. Hi and welcome to the show, I'm Ashley Ford. And last week, a Republican state senator from Bay Ridge proposed putting what he called smart scanners into New York schools to detect guns and prevent other dangerous items from being brought in. Metal detectors have been pretty controversial in the city schools. Most often found in the more segregated and lower-income schools, they criminalize students and make them feel, well, not like they're going into a nurturing environment so much as a surveillance state. And of course, metal detectors are usually placed in the schools with the fewest resources for providing adequate access to books, pencils, and even classrooms. The senator, Marty Golden, didn't say exactly what the new technology would be, but from the sounds of it, it would be like the new scanner TSA uses at airports, where you wait in long lines, empty your pockets, hold up your hands, and then receive a pat down anyway. TSA doesn't require this scan for kids under 12 because of the false positives that require successive pat-downs. And I'm also sure there aren't many parents who want to watch while some stranger adult rubs their hands all over their kid. Plus, does it really work to keep kids safe? Not really. For one thing, these systems would have to be employed around the clock, which means anytime kids or teachers or other adults wanted to enter the building, ever, Even after hours, after outdoor gym class, during PTA meetings, they'd have to go through the detector. Good luck keeping kids literally in line for at least 13 years, just so you don't have to pass common sense gun control laws. Here's hoping Generation Z is actually as rebellious as they already seem to be. On the show today, I'll face off with someone who says we should dismantle social media. No! No, really. I might actually agree with him. To a point. Also, we're going to talk about youth dating violence in the city. It's more widespread than you might think. But first, school officials in New York City have been struggling, it seems like for decades, to figure out how to fix the issue of segregation in schools, some of the worst in the country. And it appears like the latest efforts haven't worked, especially when it comes to the specialty schools. These schools require eighth graders to take rigorous exams or auditions. The tests were revamped last year so as not to give advantage to those who could afford expensive test prep. But last week, we learned that only 10% of the students offered seats in eight specialty schools are black or Latino. And at the elite Stuyvesant School, only 10 of the 902 kids offered a spot are black. Mayor de Blasio says this process has to change, but he can't change it without assent from the state legislature. Good to know that most of the control of the city schools lies in the hands of people who have no connection to the city. There was an added feature in front of the Metropolitan Museum's Temple of Dendur this weekend. Hundreds of prescription pill bottles floating in the temple's moat. The installation was the inspiration of New York artist Nan Golden, but it wasn't sanctioned by the museum. The 2,000-year-old Egyptian temple is housed in the Sackler Wing, the Brooklyn-born Sackler brothers being the ones behind notorious Purdue Pharma, makers and marketers of OxyContin. The pill bottles were a protest by Golden and a hundred others who chanted, Sackler's lie, people die. She said she wanted the family to fund rehabs and not museums. After about 20 minutes, the protesters left peacefully. The LIU basketball Blackbirds, our neighbors just around the corner, are back in the NCAA championships. 
It's the team's first time back in the big dance in five years. But the party might be short-lived. They compete in the first game of the tourney on Tuesday night against Radford. Who? In what's called a play-in game, the winner of which gets the privilege of then taking on the region's number one seed. LIU would be seeded number 16. And a 16 seed has never beaten a number one. To put a punctuation on it, when ESPN assessed the chances of the participants in this year's tourney, LIU topped the list of teams with no real chance, which is different than no chance, but not really. Back in a moment with our first conversation. The social media giants have had a couple of rough years. Facebook has been blamed for getting Trump elected. Twitter has become a hive of Russian bots. And these days, they're the two American companies that people love to hate, on Facebook or Twitter. Or in retro ways, like in a book, such as Terms of Service, Social Media and the Price of Constant Connection. Today, we have the author of that book, Jacob Silverman, here to talk about the evils of social media. Well, let me close out my Instagram. All right, and Jacob, welcome to 112VK. Thanks for having me. Jacob, this is fascinating to me, okay, because people who listen to or watch the show probably have some idea that, like, I'm heavily involved in social media. Um, it's something that I've been grappling with uh, a lot over the past year, especially on social media. Right. Um, because I'm trying to have a conversation about social media on social media, which, I'm not going to lie to you, isn't going great, Jacob. But you write about this world in which many of us are unthinkingly or unknowingly kind of becoming lemmings when it comes to social media. And we're not really paying attention to things like privacy or connection, things like that. It's just content, content, like, reward, you know, the mouse in the cheese trap. Like, what do you call that thing? Like, the reward thing. It's a right. maze, right? <laughs> but if we feel like we don't have anything to lose, which is, I feel like, what happens with a lot of people who are kind of willy-nilly with their privacy online, what's wrong with that? Well, I feel like, first of all, we've been trained to devalue our privacy. So when mm. I critique... Uh, some of these big companies and how they uh, affect issues of privacy. I think it's first important to acknowledge that we've been trained not to value our privacy very much, mm -hmm. that it's not a big deal to give away all of your personal information to these companies. Um, I mean, one thing we've certainly seen the rise of in the last few years is that there's uh, forms of discrimination that we're all familiar with in the physical world, mm -hmm. um, redlining or discrimination in, in retail shopping, things like that, mm -hmm. uh, which now appears online. Uh, for example, Facebook has gotten in trouble several times for showing that you can target ads to uh, basically minority groups, uh, and also you can target ads to people like Jew haters. That was a category for wow. Facebook advertising for a while, because Facebook is all about micro-targeting certain groups. So that means, say, you want to um, do a real estate advertisement for a new housing development, but you only want a certain type of people to, mm -hmm. to show up for the open houses. You could targeted to a certain ethnic group, and until recently that was allowed on Facebook. Now they've sort of scaled back some of what they allow with these, um, I think they call them affinity-based advertisements. Right. Um, so I think, basically, to sum it up, we enter this world assuming that it's going to be a lot more democratic, a lot more fair mm -hmm. somehow than the world we're used to. 
um, but we're not the ones really in control of our personal right. information or of how it's being used to uh, market to us especially. So when you went on tour for this book or when you've talked to people about this book, how much do people seem concerned about their privacy? Like the people who are talking to you about it, do they seem very concerned? Or are they coming to you and being like, you're a little intense and no one needs to worry about this that much? Well, I see both. I think a few years ago when my book first came out, there was a little more reticence for people to see this as a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, someone once very memorably said to me that you're telling people that candy is bad for them. Uh, and um, mm. I think at that point people weren't quite as ready for uh, this kind of critique. There were definitely people who I encountered who said, yeah, I'm worried about these big companies, I don't like lots of information being collected about me. Mm -hmm. But people sort of struggle to put that into terms. So that's what I really try to do in my writing, is give people kind of a critical framework and a language to talk about these kinds of issues. And I think over the past couple of years, as you described in the introduction, attitudes have kind of shifted, and people are saying, starting to take a more critical eye towards these yes. companies. But they're still sort of figuring out how do we describe this? You know, what kind of power do these companies wield? What kind of power do they wield over us, over our yes. elections, things like that? So what's your central critique of social media as it stands right now? Well, I think that um, basically a surveillance-based economy, which is what social media is, it's all about collecting as much data as mm -hmm. possible about its users, is inherently an undemocratic and really just unfair space from the perspective of user rights. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of sayings about how if you're not paying for something, you are the product. We're both the product and sort of the laborers because we post the mm -hmm. content that makes these big platforms rich. And because there are only a few platforms, that contributes to a huge concentration of power, of control over information, mm -hmm. especially with Facebook and Google, of course. Um, but Twitter still exerts a major role on the direction of the news cycle. So I think that concentration of power combined with this sort of personal data and surveillance-driven economy is really unhealthy. Yeah, I mean, when I, you say it like that, it sounds unhealthy. But I have to, <laughs> but I have to ask, you know, like, in all of that, it's it, it, one of the things that I'm thinking as you say those is what is the alternative for people who want a way to connect socially but right. don't want to have to essentially sign over you know, all of this data right. to a company or all of their content to a company. It's like, is there something, is there a place where you can still, like, create a network online for you and your family and your friends and people whose thoughts you like or whatever, and you're not being taken advantage of in this way? Does that exist? It's hard to say. I mean, there are these sort of small platforms, like uh, Elo was one that was popular a couple right. of years ago, and every so often one sort of bubbles into the, above the surface and you hear about it. And so there are definitely platforms out there, social platforms, that are built on mm -hmm. uh, more principles of, say, no advertising, no data collection, or more decentralization. But they don't really have what, what are called network effects, which is basically as a network gains more members, it becomes more useful right. and more profitable. Um, right. So that's, again, why I don't blame users. Or I'm an, I use a lot of these products. I'm not on mm -hmm. Facebook, but I'm on Twitter, and I use a fair amount as a journalist. Right. But we're all sort of entangled in these platforms yes. and these modes of communication. And the utility of them, I think, is pretty obvious. That's why they became so popular. Mm -hmm. But um, there are other models out there, um, cooperatives. There are, there's a movement to buy Twitter and turn it into a cooperative. It's not necessarily likely, yeah. mm -hmm. but... Um, 
the technology for some of these services is pretty simple in some ways mm -hmm. and could be repurposed to uh, really decentralize power in a fundamental way. Wow. Or you could wait for the Justice Department to intervene and eventually break up Facebook, which I don't know exactly what that will look like, but it's certainly possible. There's a lot more antitrust talk just in the last few months or a year than there had been in the last decade, I'd say. So how do we detangle ourselves from that tangle? You know, like, that's, like there's so much going on there. And I know that when people pick up their phones or they're logging in their computers to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever, they're not thinking about those bigger implications. And they're not thinking about that because you sort of go there in a way, in your mind anyway, the intention is that, like, that's sort of a playtime. Right. You're not supposed to be paying attention to <laughs> things like that. So how do we get out of it? Like, how do we, you know, especially as a person who works in media as well, as a writer, as, you know, a person who is pretty socially awkward, to be perfectly honest, <laughs> and having conversations online really helps me connect with people in a way that I'm not always able to in person. Where do we find opportunities to detangle ourselves? Right. Are they just small things? What do you do? Well, I think there are a couple questions or ways to tackle this. There's mm -hmm. sort of the day-to-day, -day, what's sometimes called digital hygiene, mm -hmm. which this means things like turn off notifications or perhaps right. remove apps from your phone, set certain hours for yourself to engage with this stuff. Um, and I think all of that's very valid. At the same time, I think people need to have this larger systemic critique mm -hmm. of who are these companies, what are they doing, how do they treat their users, where does our data go, mm -hmm. what are politicians doing about this, um, what kind of companies are or government entities are Facebook and Google and Twitter making deals with. Right. And that's the big picture stuff, but I think that's equally important, and I think people need to come around to that as we see this great influence that they're exerting. Right. Now, can you talk about the weaponization of social media? Because this is really, really interesting to me. Because um, we're not just talking about Russian bots, which a lot of people are all up in arms right now. It's like Russian bots, Russian bots, Russian bots. That's everywhere. But I do want to talk to you a little bit about them. I want to talk to you about those, you know, targeted meme ads and things on Facebook. Like, is that weaponizing social media or is that just using it? That's a really good distinction to make. I think in a lot of ways it's just using social media as it's intended. Mm -hmm. um, you're just targeting people based on their demonstrated interests and their data profiles that they've developed on Facebook and other mm -hmm. places. And the difference that perhaps elevates it to that weaponized category mm -hmm. is that there's a specific political message or, or a intention to sow chaos from a foreign power. Mm -hmm. But if... The, the Trump campaign, in some ways, was doing very similar things. They were just doing it perhaps more legitimately, which was right. they were targeting people with inflammatory ads and material and mm -hmm. trying to rile up um, uh, voters who might turn against Clinton in one way or another or people who might be encouraged to not vote at all. Right. Um, so in that sense, it, I think what makes it so unsettling or painful for Facebook to look at is that in, in, in a lot of ways their product was used as intended. Right. Um, the, the big problem, though, also is that uh, users rarely have any idea where their advertising is coming from or what right. viewpoint it's trying to put forward. 
Um, so we expect a certain amount of suspicion and skepticism out of users out there, out of readers, that we've come a long way from the Internet chain letter. Mm -hmm. But it seems that that's not the case, that people are still very credulous, or when they see information being passed to them by their friends and family, they assume that it's somehow legitimate. Yeah. And I think um, what the bot issue sort of represents is not only the capacity for misinformation to be weaponized, but also to travel through these social channels of familiar people and to therefore be more influential on us. I read an article the other day, and forgive me, I can't say where, about the fact that for some reason, even though um, most likely, um, I want to say news stories that are like really well done and based in fact, like they go um, faster initially, but that the ones that are heavily biased or that hold false information are the ones that last the longest, okay. I believe. Like, just as far as being passed around and being um, shared among people. So then that makes me wonder, like, is there a way for social, especially when it comes to things like fake news, because everybody's talking about fake news right now, fake news, fake news, fake news. Is there a way to hold accountable the people who introduced fake news into the sphere? Or is there not? Well, there is. It's just the methods that are used are questionable, I'd say. Mm. You have companies like Facebook and YouTube who are saying we're hiring thousands of moderators. Right. Now, over the last few years, there's been a lot of great reporting on who these moderators actually are and the conditions they work under. Mm -hmm. They're often in developing world countries, but they're also here in the U.S. and in Europe working in these big sort of cubicle farms where mm -hmm. they're exposed all day to the horrible stuff that people post online, just the right. worst things you can imagine. Um, now, while that system may be effective in some ways, it's obviously very problematic. Right. Um, so going after the people who are specifically posting fake news, I, I don't know if that can really be done in a systematized way, but it's also right. the responsibility to some extent of these companies to be able to moderate and police their platforms. So when they say simply, we're hiring more moderators, it just it seems like you're taking an uh, only partially effective solution and pouring right. more resources into it. Right. So I do think um, it is some responsibility of Facebook and Twitter and these companies to figure out ways um, that go beyond just simply throwing more money at the problem and hiring more moderators. Do you have any ideas? <laughs> I don't know if I do, um, but I, they don't pay me to do that. Right, um, <laughs> like I might have some ideas if somebody comes up out the pocket and pays me for my ideas. And part of the problem is also people like me don't have access to all the data that, that these companies have, and they know how things share, and they see that, uh, that false information shares very widely. Even something like The Onion is, is one of the most uh, shared sites right. on Facebook, so they know how that kind of information travels, right. and they see that the list of, of top shared sites are often very polarized, extreme, even mm -hmm. just blatantly untrue sites. Right. So that's something that Facebook could easily tackle by turning to those anthropologists and in-house sociologists and people that they hire to study that data, I think. Right. Well, I hope they do. Jacob, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate thank it. Last month was Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month. Its aim was to educate parents, teens, and community members on the disturbing prevalence of abusive relationships in this demographic. According to the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence, every year, 1.5 million high school students nationwide experience physical abuse in a dating context. 
On the parental side of things, data shows only one in four parents talk to their children about this kind of violence. Here to help us understand these statistics and what's being done to address this issue in New York City is Stephanie Rodriguez, Youth Coordinator at The Healing Center. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Can you just start by telling me really quickly, what is The Healing Center? So the Healing Center is a domestic violence and sexual, sexual assault um, prevention and intervention agency uh, that serves uh, South Brooklyn, but all of New York City in general. How did you get involved in this work, Stephanie? I actually come from a performing arts background, mm. and I started out volunteering with the Daughters of the Lotus program, mm -hmm. doing uh, dance therapy, things like that. Mm -hmm. And once a position opened, I left corporate and never looked back. Tell me about Daughters of the Lotus. So Daughters of the Lotus is a program for teen girls, gender-fluid youth, um, who have either experienced teen dating violence or who have witnessed domestic violence or just want to get uh, give back to the community. That makes sense. That mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense. I like that idea. What's your role as the youth coordinator? So as a youth coordinator, I facilitate uh, workshops in high schools talking about teen dating violence, healthy versus unhealthy relationships, what's the difference between consent and coercion. I also run the Daughters of the Lotus program where we do many of those workshops, but we also look at the intersectionalities between race, classism, xenophobia, sexism, um, toxic masculinity and that. Um, and we also are the founders of the New York City Teen Dating Violence Awareness Walkathon. Mm -hmm. It's on its seven year. Um, it brings uh, teens from all over New York City to come together. We have a rally and then we walk over the Brooklyn Bridge and end with a press conference at City Hall. When's that? April 14th. April 14th. I'm going to mm -hmm. ask you that again at the end. Yes. So you better not forget. What are you seeing in Brooklyn in regard to teen dating violence? Well, what I'm seeing, there's a very big trend of not discussing what teen dating violence is. Mm -hmm. um, many people think domestic violence and they automatically think husband, wife, mm -hmm. children involved. But the highest rates of domestic violence is going on in the teenage years from 16 to 24. Wow. So that's the high school years, that's the beginning of college. So I'm seeing um, there's not really much talk going on around teen dating violence and especially within the households either. Why do you think that is? Because many people don't know themselves what a healthy relationship looks like. Mm. And we know that abuse is a cycle. So if your parents are in an unhealthy or abusive relationship, most likely you're, you have a higher chance of being in one yourself also. So how can you have a conversation about something that mm. you're going through yourself? So that I think that's... And it's an awkward conversation for parents to have. Is that what's most alarming you with what you're seeing in Brooklyn right now, or is there something else? I think what's also alarming me is everyone's thinking of physical abuse, you mm -hmm. know, sexual assault, which is physical abuse. The Me Too movement is great. It's giving a voice to uh, victims. But at the same time, there's so many other tactics that abusers use before they even get physical. Right. And one big thing that I see a lot of is isolation and... For a teenager, when this is your first relationship, it's like, oh, wow, my partner wants to spend all this time with me, but right. little by little, they're actually isolating you to groom you. So mm -hmm. that's, it's those tactics that people don't pay attention to that alarm me the most. What happens to the teens who end up in a situation where they're experiencing partner violence? Mm -hmm. um, 
what happens, in, and I always wonder about this, like, if we get them in the teenage years, do we typically see that from then on they do pretty well in terms of relationships? Or is it like what we see, I think, more in adulthood where it becomes a bit of a pattern? Right. Because it's familiar. Exactly. I think we need to get into the teenage years and even younger than that. Um, having K through 12 programming in schools on what a healthy relationship is, what mm -hmm. good touches are, what bad touches are, because we need, once you start learning this from a young age, it becomes embedded in you. Right. So you're less likely to end up in an abusive relationship because you know the signs to look out for. And it's not so taboo, it's not so secret, so you feel more comfortable being able to speak about it right. because you were having these educational uh, workshops from a young age. Right. So prevention is so important. Prevention and education is so important to be able to eradicate um, any type of abuse. I also think about the gendered aspect of abuse and specifically an intimate partner or domestic violence or teen dating violence. Mm -hmm. um, the gendered issue is always really interesting to me because I think there are times when people say, well, you know, if it's a gender nonconforming person or if it's a guy and a guy or a woman and a woman, it's like, well, then, then it's not domestic violence right. because of the gender. Like, it's only domestic violence when men hit women, who they are in romantic relationships right. with. Which is completely um, not true. We right. know that it's happening in the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. um, what, where, where we're having some of the issues, figure out who the prim primary aggressor is. So if you're mm -hmm. not trained, so for a police officer to come in and... There was a call, a domestic dispute happened, they come in, they see two females or they'll see two males, they'll usually go after whichever looks most masculine because mm -hmm. it's embedded in us, masculine hitting the feminine. Right. So um, that's where we're seeing a bit of an issue come in. And then especially when you add on LGBTQ, race, socioeconomics, mm -hmm. then it just becomes a whole big mess. Can you talk to me about specifically race and social? economics. So there's a big stereotype that domestic violence mostly happens um, in minority communities and immigrant mm -hmm. communities, but it's not true. It happens to everyone regardless of your sex, uh, gender identity, right. um, race, religion. It, it, it affects everyone, socioeconomic mm -hmm. class. But where it becomes more difficult is when you have to get services. Mm -hmm. So at the Healing Center, all our services are free. Um, many nonprofits in New York City is the same way. Mm -hmm. But we can only go so far. You need the therapy. You need trauma-informed therapy. A therapist can be very expensive. Mm -hmm. So and. It, if the therapist doesn't have a background in DV, doesn't understand the trauma that happens when it comes to domestic violence, they can't really um, deal with the trauma correctly. So to go to have Medicaid and ha go to a social worker at a hospital, they're not really equipped to deal with the issue mm -hmm. at hand. That's what I'm thinking, that there are a lot of people who definitely have the spirit wanting to help, but don't necessarily have the tools. So parents, teachers, community members, how can they help? Educating yourself, educating yourself on the myths, um, breaking down stereotypes, checking your own language. For so long, we use syntax like Maria was beaten instead of Paul hit Maria, So, right. which puts accountability on the uh, perpetrator versus the victim. Right. Um, victim blaming, not victim blaming, um, and also uh, people 
when they want to help, they get scared and they just want the person to leave. Um, mm -hmm. When you force someone to leave, you're doing the same thing that the abuser does, because domestic violence, teen dating violence, at its core, is about power and control over another person. Right. So if you're forcing someone to leave a relationship without mm -hmm. their free will, you're putting your power over them also. So you're doing the same so, thing as the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. So we believe that we are in an anchor, so we're here from when you want services. We're here. We You don't leave the, our uh, center without a safety plan for mm -hmm. if you're going to stay in the relationship or leave the relationship, because safety mm -hmm. is our number one concern. Right. Because it's, it's a powerful thing to be able to take your power back and say, I'm done with this relationship versus, versus it being forced onto you. Yes. Yes. Tell me again, <laughs> one more time how people can participate in this walk -a So, um, the walk happens every year. Mm -hmm. It's uh, our seventh year. We're very proud of it. Um, we have some great co-sponsors um, that help us out with the walk. Mm -hmm. It's April 14th. Uh, you can register online. You can mm -hmm. find our information through our website, which is www.healingcenterny.org, um, which will take you to our registration page. All students who participate get community service hours. Um, and it's a really fun rally where we have performers, mm -hmm. uh, we come together as a community, and we have our voices heard. And it's great to have teens have their voices heard because they're the ones who need to lead this fight. You know, they're the yes. ones who are going to be the future activists. They're the ones who are going to be the future leaders, the future therapists. So it's great for them to take control over this uh, walk. Definitely. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. On 112BK Tomorrow, we'll get updated on the latest DACA developments, a college prep program for low-income minority women, and how to slay. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Barkey, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hobbesack, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leap, and Sasha Mathias.